Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Medina East Campus again. My name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at our campus. And so uh, basically this morning, what we are going to be doing is we are going to be continuing in a series that we started about three or four weeks ago. And this series is basically a 13-week conversation. Many of you know, and if you don't, it should be up on the screen behind me. This series has been a 90-day trek, 90-day trek through the Bible. So what we've been really looking to do throughout this series is to take a look at like the mega story or the big plot line across the Bible from start to finish. So like from Genesis all the way to Revelation, as it were. And we've been doing that in our weekend services. Um, And we've also simultaneously, we have uh, challenged each other as a campus community to either read through the Bible or the Old Testament or the New Testament in 90 days. So I think that's a a pretty big challenge for some of us, but I think the results thus far have been pretty fantastic. I know I've uh, spoken with a number of you who are really jazzed up about getting into the Bible, and that's really the goal of the whole thing. So And let me just say that if you are a guest here with us today, or uh, maybe you started a reading plan um, and you fizzled out a little bit, or uh, if you haven't been able to connect uh, with our weekend services in the past few weeks due to vacation and other things, I just want to encourage you that this is a perfect series to jump on board or jump back on board with at any point in time. Again, our goal throughout this series is simply to get us into the Bible And that can happen at any time. So what we've done as a staff is we have provided a slew of resources to you to just do exactly that. So um, if you're, again, if you're a guest or if you need to get reconnected with some of those plans, those reading plans, you can go to our Welcome Center after the conclusion of the service and you can uh, scope that out there. But uh, if you've missed some weekend services again or you still need those plans, you can catch up on anything with regards to this series online at our website, medinaeast.graceohio.org. And you can simply click on the A 90 Day Trek Through the Bible banner that is scrolling across that homepage, or you can access any of those resources through the ministries drop down under 90 resources. So again, uh, a couple weeks back, uh, we started this conversation and last week, Clark, who you just saw uh, giving some announcements today, uh, last week he walked us through the Exodus story. Um, And again, we're looking to kind of see how um, the mega plot line of the Bible fleshes itself out. So last week, Clark did a phenomenal job of walking us through Exodus and he talked about how the Bible communicates that we are, excuse me, saved from the clutches or the control of Satan. So this week, we're actually going to continue along that line, and we are going to be talking a little bit about how the Bible teaches that we can be saved from sin, and that this is something that is found in the book of Leviticus. I can hear the groans. It's okay. Leviticus, okay? Okay, I admit, Leviticus is not exactly the most action-packed book of the Bible. A lot of weird stuff going on, a lot of sacrifices and blood and weird rituals and how to be clean and all that, all that sort of good stuff. I actually would affectionately refer to Leviticus as the graveyard of Bible reading plans. (laughs) It's, It's the spot in the Bible where the attempt to read from cover to cover comes to die. Well, and... (laughs) And why, why is that? Why is that exactly? Well, I think when you start to read Leviticus, it just seems like it's a book with a lot of rituals and a lot of rules, a lot of stuff going on in there that seems like it's, 
It's religious practices and rituals from an archaic culture that could never hope to have any application for us here today. Um, I think even for me, uh, often we find that as Christians, the, the very last book of the Bible that we, we, uh, we endeavor to read is the book of Leviticus from start to finish. And that was actually true of me. I think uh, Leviticus was the last book that I, that I read, and I only read through it because I had to for a Bible class that I was taking for college. And so Levit- Leviticus can be you know, pretty pretty tricky for us, but... What's interesting is that often when we think about Leviticus, it's the last book of the Bible that we consider as having application for modern day life. But it's interesting, if you look at the training system of Jewish rabbis and Jewish scholars, when they would look to begin to uh, unpack or unfold the, the, uh, the nuts and the bolts of their religion to young Jewish boys, so even about like five, six, five, six years of age or even younger, The first book that they would begin in that curriculum was not the book of Genesis. You would think Genesis, creation of the world. Got it, right? Wasn't the book of Genesis. It wasn't the book of Isaiah. So for even for a lot of us Christians, we're like Isaiah contains a lot of like prophetic or promises about some sort of Messiah who's going to do something amazing on God's behalf. And so it wasn't Isaiah. It wasn't even the Psalms, which is kind of like this reflective book of devotional book. The first book that Jewish rabbis and scholars would walk their children through was Leviticus. Leviticus. Now, what in the name of everything that is holy would cause them to give this book in the Bible the kind of preeminence that they do? I actually had an epiphany recently that I think is going to be helpful for us as we look to discover why it might even be important to study the book of Leviticus. Uh, So when I was growing up as a teenager, about 17 years old, I started to get really into the music of the Beatles. Now for some of you, you're groaning at that. I know that there are people out there that don't like the Beatles. For others of you, you're like, dude, you're my new best friend. (laughs) So for the latter audience, I say, I accept your BFF request on Facebook. We're bros. And to the former, I just have this message for you. Just come together, man. All you need is love. All you need is love. So anyway, back at about 17 years of age, I got into the Beatles, and uh, right about the same time, there was this documentary that debuted on television called The Beatles Anthology. Now, The Beatles Anthology was, again, a documentary that, for any avid fan, gave you like the chronicling of the entire history of all things John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Now, what was really cool about this documentary, I mean, it was fascinating in itself, but there were actually a, uh, a set of three CD box sets, and I know half of you in this room don't know what a CD is, I get that, iTunes hadn't been invented yet, but just bear with me, but we had these three CD box sets of the Beatles anthology <clears throat> that was releasing some Beatles music. Now, what was cool about this anthology is they weren't just re-releasing songs from the albums that the Beatles came out with in the 60s. What was debuted on these Beatles anthology albums, one, one kind of segment of what was debuted were like songs that you never heard the Beatles record before. Either they were written by another artist and the Beatles recorded them and it didn't make it on an album, or they were written by the Beatles and it just kind of didn't make the cut for whatever was going to be on their latest album back in the 60s. But the other cool thing that was on the Beatles anthology CDs was uh, like kind of like the, the different takes 
the unique arrangements and the demos of all those songs that you knew and loved from the Beatles. Like all the way down to Paul McCartney sitting in his living room with an acoustic guitar and just his voice singing Yesterday. And what was really neat about that is it sort of started to give you, it unfolded for you like this unique part about the creative process. You start to get this idea that like, that this demo became a building block to something that when it finished the creative process was that thing, that song that you knew and loved so well. So like the demo wouldn't have stood on its own if it was released on a CD, just, just wouldn't have cut it. But the demo was worthwhile in the sense of, again, it became a building block. You appreciated the demo when you understood and heard the final product. I think that is actually a very, very helpful way of approaching the book of Leviticus. You see, the book of Leviticus is designed to fit in the big story of God's salvation as told throughout the whole Bible. It's kind of like a demo or a building block in that regard. Leviticus is not meant to stand alone or by itself. It can't shoulder the weight of what we bring to it if we look at it that way. Okay, So Leviticus has to be seen in this broad, overarching story of salvation. I think if we, if we treat Leviticus like a one-off, it starts to look like that archaic book of ancient culture that couldn't ever help to have any relevancy to us. But I firmly believe that if we're willing to do the hard work of looking into where Leviticus is situated as a building block in God's big story of salvation, we're gonna find some things in Leviticus that are truly breathtaking and mind-blowing, okay? I promise, okay? So here's what we're gonna do. We're going to go to the first chapter of the book of Leviticus, And we're going to examine the first five verses of the first chapter of Leviticus. And our goal is going to be to see how those five verses give us an idea of a survey of Leviticus as a whole. And then tying that back up to God's big story of salvation and how Leviticus fits. So if you brought your Bibles today, turn to Leviticus chapter 1 and don't groan, okay? Don't groan. Turn to Leviticus chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible today or you don't have a Bible, um, there are Bibles in the seats, in the basins underneath the seats in front of you. So you can grab that. That'll be on page 68 in those Bibles. And let me just also add that if you don't have a Bible to call your very own or if you have an outdated translation, just go ahead and take that Bible with you today. It's our gift from like us to you because, again, we just want you to dig into the Bible. So Leviticus 1, the words will also be on the screen, Verses 1 through 5. Let's dive in. It's going to be so exciting. All right. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, which is the animal, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. This idea of atonement is two parties that were separated and almost irreconcilable are brought together. There's a change of relationship that happens, and they're now reconciled. They're friends. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. 
And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and you are to cut it to pieces. Okay. It's gross. What in the world is going on here? I I think it's important for us to first start to draw out some of the background of some concepts that any Israelite reading this or kind of operating under some of the rules that were given here that any Israelite would have understood. Okay, so here's, here's some background. If you were an Israelite, if you were part of the nation of Israel during this time, you would have, as a part of your regular, like, daily schedule, you would offer sacrifices at either the temple or the tabernacle, which is this tent of meeting, which was like the place that God was said to dwell, like God was supposed to be there. You would regularly offer sacrifices at the temple or the tabernacle if there was some sort of wrongdoing that occurred in your life, if you did something wrong, okay? Now, this wrongdoing, the Bible calls, and they would have called this sin, now, it's important to get our minds around this because I think for, for us, like, sin can have a lot of negative connotations to it. And it does, but, but here's the deal. Sin, for them, was at its core, it's a lot of things, but at its core, it simply meant something like missing the mark. Okay? Missing the mark. And what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, if you think of, like, a target in archery or if you're shooting a gun... <laughs> If you think of a target, you you have this bullseye right in the middle on that target, right? So the bullseye is the mark. It is the goal. When you're shooting an arrow or shooting a gun, you want that thing to hit dead center. So missing the mark is anything that either is just outside on that uh, outer circle, outside the target, all the way to completely missing the hay bale that the target is affixed to. All of that outside is considered missing the mark. And so if you think about it that way, it's really helpful because the people of Israel would have kind of understood sin or missing the mark as missing the target of everything that God had designed humans to be. Everything that God had designed for human beings and life to flourish to be, okay? So human beings miss the mark. Whether it's flagrant or whether it's just outside, doesn't matter, it's missing the mark. So the the question that this begs is then, what is the relationship between sin in human beings and this idea of sacrifice that we see here in the book of Leviticus? Well, now the answer to that is very complex. I'm not going to lie to you. It's very complex. But suffice it to say that the biblical understanding of this, suffice it to say that the idea rests in the biblical concept of holiness, Something that the book of Leviticus as a whole is very intent on getting in front of its readers. Okay, so the word holy, the word holiness or sacred or sanctify, all of these words are tied back to one single Hebrew word. And that one single Hebrew word appears over 86 times in the book of of Leviticus alone. Now, it's important to get our minds wrapped around this word, too, and define it a little bit as they would have understood it. See, for us, we don't really use the word holy or holiness a lot in our day and age, although we do have certain phrases that we use that maybe aren't just very helpful. So I can think of like stuff like, well, she's holier than that, or, oh, he's a holy roller, or even like, holy cow, 
which is bizarre, which is probably a cow is a substitute for another word that none of us have ever uttered in our lives. So, but if, if you think about this, we have a lot of negative connotations that come with that because holiness or being holy almost signifies that a person is self-righteous. They're pious, if you will, if you're going to use that word. Or they think they know something that other people don't. Or they're, they think they're closer to God than someone else. It's really not helpful. So if we're going to look back to the biblical definition of holiness, it's actually somewhat somewhat simple, and I'll, I'll throw these, uh, a couple of these definitions on the screen for us. Holiness in the Bible simply means, at its core, set apart. It gives this connotation of distinct or unique. We might even say uncommon. And anytime holiness is used in the Bible, the Bible wants to get across to us that the idea of holiness does not reside in some exemplary characteristic of human beings, but it always originates or rests in the truth about who God is as a good creator, okay? As a good creator that back in Genesis 1 and 2 had created this amazing world, and what we mean by good is he created this world as like suitable for human life and for human flourishing. So we have this idea that, maybe I'll throw this up on the screen here too, that the holiness of God could be summarized as that attribute of God's nature that is not like human beings who are compromised and plagued by sin, compromised and plagued by this idea of missing the mark. So, so here we got sin on one hand for human beings and holiness on the other. And you seem to get this idea that if sin, if this missing the mark of God's design for humanity is common now to humanity, the holiness of God would be described as almost like how utterly good and beautiful God is when compared to the evil and the ugliness of sin that resides in human beings. And here's how the concepts, these two concepts of sin and of holiness interact. We have to understand that God, being the good God that he is in his holiness, is not exactly all okay with what sin has done to fracture human beings and the relationship they had with God. God's not okay with that. He's not cozy with the idea that sin has destroyed this aspect of human beings that was designed to reflect the goodness and the character of God. Actually, God's pretty upset about this throughout all of scripture. And so the Bible uses words like wrath and it uses words like judgment to describe for us the attitude and the approach that God has toward sin, the attitude and the approach that God has toward sin. So wrath and judgment basically like refer to the fact, if they're tied to holiness, wrath and judgment refer to the fact that uh, God is intensely desirous to act in a tenacious way to repair and fix his broken creation, that God is faithfully committed to act in a tenacious way to set things right again and to bring goodness and wholeness back into the world and to save human beings in the process. And so if we start to think this idea through a little bit, we get these sort of two perspectives that even the Bible seems to offer to us about approaching this understanding of God's holiness, two perspectives. In one sense, the holiness of God can be called good. Good. 
and that we have this disposition of a God who desires human beings and the world to flourish in accordance with the way he made it. So it can be called like holiness is good. But then we also have on this other hand, the holiness of God when viewed in this way is almost, in other ways, is dangerous. Dangerous because God in his holiness is dead set on fixing the brokenness of sin in dealing with sin and eradicating sin in the world. I think one of the best ways that we have of thinking about this idea, because it might still be fuzzy for us, the best way that we have of thinking about this like twofold or two-sided definition of God's holiness is to liken it to the sun, okay? So if you think about it, the sun is in many respects set apart from everything that we experience here on the earth in our day-to-day. It's set apart, but the sun in its set-apartness can be considered very good. It is a very good thing. I mean, think about what comes from the sun. The sun brings us light. It brings us warmth and heat. It brings us the energy as it interacts with us. It brings us the energy that is required to grow any organic thing that exists on this planet. So in that sense, again, it can be called good. If we didn't have the sun, we're done for. We're toast. There is no such thing as life. So again, in that respect, it can be called very good. But for all of the goodness of the sun, the sun and its holiness is also a very dangerous thing. It's dangerous if someone were to approach the sun in an irresponsible way. And in the event that any of you don't want to believe me, I challenge you, strap on a jetpack, get out your iPhone, ping Siri, ask for the coordinates to the sun, and go ahead and try. Get as close as you can. I'm not sure if the word incineration is the best word to use to describe what would happen, but it's pretty darn close. And what's very, very interesting about this analogy, what's so effective about it is we start to see in the Bible that similar things happen to people who too casually or irresponsibly approach or draw near to God. So with some of this idea in mind, with human sin on one hand and with the twofold aspect of God's holiness, let's jump back into the passage here real quick, Leviticus 1. Now, keep in mind that here in Leviticus 1, God is calling out to Moses from this place, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And if you were to flip back one page, you would have seen in Exodus 40 that God had, had kind of uh, told Moses how he should build this thing. And once Moses was finished, God, like in this epic moment of, of uh, yeah, like fire and cloud descends on the tabernacle. And so the, imp- and the implication is that God in all his holiness is dwelling in the middle of the people. And so that's what we're getting here. That's the background of Leviticus 1, 1 through 5. And But that begs a very interesting question because God in verse 1 is calling out to Moses and he's giving him instructions. Do you see what's really crazy about this? That God, in all his goodness and holiness, is dwelling right in the middle in very close proximity to a sinful people. And what's even more crazy about this is is look at some of the words that are used starting in verse 2. God's commanding, he's like saying, speak to the Israelites, say to them, 
when anyone among you, what's the word, brings. When any one of you brings an offering, the implication of an offering is a gift that you would give to the sovereign, you would approach the king with it. So look, look, about, look at the trajectory, look what's happening, look at the movement. It says, any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, what's he repeat? Bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer, do you see the point, you see the repetition, without a, a male without blemish or defect. You must, another way of saying the same thing, you must present it, you must bring it close at the entrance of the tent of meeting. How is this even possible? If human beings are sinful, if the nation of Israel is sinful, how is it even possible that God is there and then he's like drawing them closer with this language? He's like saying, hey guys, come on, live close to the sun. Come on a little bit closer. Siri can come too if you'd like. Come on. What's going on here? I think the answer to this is almost mysteriously but beautifully found in verse 4. Verse 4 says this. Here's what the worshiper, the person who's bringing this offering, and the person who's getting close to God is to do. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. To make atonement for you. This is huge. So God, again, in his holiness, he is not okay with the sin that's in human beings. But simultaneously, God in his holiness desires for people to come near to him so that one more time they can reflect his goodness. So here's what we have. We have the worshiper, God kind of making a way where the worshiper can kind of put his hand up in the air and say, God, I've missed the mark. I get it. I'm acknowledging it. I'm owning this thing of missing the mark. Almost like raising his hand and putting his hand on the head of the animal as a symbol of identification. Meaning like the sin that's in me, God, you're making a way to kind of draw this sin out into one place on the animal. That the animal would die, that God would deal with the sin. He would kill it, he would eradicate it in the animal. And that the human being could be rescued from sin and could live near to God's presence. Something God has desperately wanted since the fall, since Genesis 3, since sin entered the world. This, this is a huge deal because it's, again, it's almost like God is saying there's a way for sin to be drawn out of you into one spot so God can simultaneously be just in fixing his good creation and gracious in offering us a life together with him. So I think what's awesome about this is that, uh, is that sometimes when we read these passages, we don't necessarily, until we're exposed to this big story, we don't necessarily think about sin all too often. And I know we defined it before, and we might have gotten our heads wrapped around that, but what we haven't talked about is how, is how the Bible treats the severity of sin. The severity of sin. Guys, sin in the Bible, and you could see it kind of in the imagery of like what happens to the animal. 
when the sin is symbolically transferred to it, sin is a disease. It's like a spiritual cancer that is so severe and runs deeper and farther in the lives of human beings than we could ever possibly know. The Bible treats sin as the most severe thing. The Bible treats it as like sin has a stranglehold on the life of the person. And I think it's interesting if we talk about sin as kind of being like a spiritual cancer, there are a lot of parallels and a lot of resonances in what we know about cancer in our modern context, this physical ailment that some people go through. And one of the best ways to think about sin is this idea of cancer. See, cancer is a disease of the severest variety. Why? Because the disease itself is so inextricably bound to the DNA of the person. See, cancer occurs when abnormal cells, which are the building blocks of human life, grow out of control. When cells in the body, as it were, miss the mark, okay? And so I remember having some of these conversations and doing some of this research on cancer when I discovered six years ago, after a phone call, that my sister was diagnosed with lymphoma. And I remember thinking, I remember our whole family talking about this, we were not okay with what that cancer, what those abnormal cells were doing to my sister. We were not okay with that. And in fact, we were going to, she was going to go to radical lengths to deal with that disease, to eradicate it and to kill it. If you start to think about some of these parallels, that's kind of the approach of God toward human sin. God is not okay with the thing that has fractured and broken us. And he goes to great lengths to deal with it, to eradicate it. So again, I think about my sister. We weren't okay with what was happening to her because we knew that there was abnormalities in her very DNA that could kill her. If she didn't deal with this, some of you may have experienced this with family and yourself. If, she wasn't, if we didn't deal with this, she was going to die. And the challenge is, see, we, she responded by going through this therapy called uh, chemotherapy, this treatment, chemotherapy. And so chemotherapy is basically a radiation that targets cells and is, is basically killing cells. And the challenge of the doctors with chemotherapy and with cancer is that the doctors don't have a great way to separate or differentiate the abnormal cells, the missing the mark cells, from the cells that are healthy. So what chemotherapy does, it is literally a complete cell destroyer. And the hope is that as someone undergoes chemotherapy, that all the abnormal cells die and are eradicated before the good ones, the healthy ones, die, so that then the healthy ones can continue to multiply and to grow again. This is again a fantastic way to look at how Leviticus and the Bible deals with human sin, how God is dealing with human sin. Think back again to this passage. It's not just some random archaic thing. Look at the grace of God that is available to the people of Israel 
in this passage. The grace of God that exists in sacrifice. Again, the individual placing their hand on the head of the animal. God is making a way to separate the abnormal cells from the healthy one, to draw the sin out, to put it into one place, to deal with it in a very, very radical, radical way. God is doing here the impossible. He's making the impossible possible in drawing sin out. Do you see the simultaneously like nauseating but beautiful imagery in this passage? See, sometimes we'll look at sacrifice in the Old Testament and we'll think, well, God seems rude. He seems like very angry and maybe unnecessarily so. But sacrifice isn't something that the Israelites invented to appease some unnecessary anger of God. God's the one that's giving sacrifice to them as a means of his grace. That human beings, that the Israelites could do nothing in and of themselves to separate the abnormal in their lives from the normal in their lives. They couldn't do anything about it. And yet God was, was making a way for this to happen through this idea of sacrifice, through an animal standing in the place of taking the hit for their sin. What's phenomenal about this is that if we were just going to look at the book of Leviticus alone, and we were going to walk away today with just a better understanding of the nature of sacrifice in the Old Testament, I think we today would miss the mark as well. Because the reality is, is that the Bible, the sacrificial system in Leviticus, points forward to something better, greater, and more complete. And the sacrificial system also points forward to the reality that we all need our sin dealt with. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul on this stuff. With all of Leviticus in mind, think about this. As we put Romans 3, 23 through 26 on the screen. This is what it says. For all have sinned. Everybody. Not just the Israelites. Not just people way back then. Me. You. We are inflicted with this cancerous disease of sin. And it goes far deeper than we could ever possibly understand. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. We miss the mark. And I think all of us can feel it. Underneath our skin, we can feel it. We all know that there's something not right. And we go to great lengths to try to fix it. And we pursue so many different things to try to fill the void that this cancer is rotting away in us. We go to so many different lengths for this and we're never satisfied. We're never full. We all know this to be true. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But again, check this out. With all of Leviticus in mind, listen to this. But all are justified, meaning 
reconciled, meaning brought close in relationship. All are justified freely by what? By God's grace. How does this grace express itself? Through the redemption, meaning the freedom and liberation from sin that comes or came by Christ Jesus. God presented, remember that language? God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Christ standing in the place of sinners to draw the sin into one location at the cross and God there deals with our sin. To be received, he says, Paul says, not by laying the hand on the head of an animal. He says to be received by faith, by trusting and believing Jesus, that that sacrifice is good to pay for my sin and to bring me into a relationship with God, and believing that God does have my best at heart And that's very clearly made known in the ministry and the person of Jesus. To be received by faith, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness, his goodness, his being for the creation and for us at the present time. What's this? So as to be just one aspect of God's holiness, dealing with sin, putting things to right, so as to be just and the one who justifies, meaning the one who brings us close to him in relationship. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. You guys gotta catch this. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is the place where God has offered us freedom from the disease that we could not liberate ourselves from. This is it. And we are, we are prone to say here at the Medina East Campus, it's so good, like, remember, sin is a cancer. We say, you are more messed up than you think. But the sacrifice of Jesus simultaneously tells us that we are more accepted in Christ than we ever thought possible. You are more messed up than you think you are, but you are more accepted in Christ than you ever thought possible. Now, all this would be enough to just shut it down right here, but just allow me to do one more thing for us because I think this is really gonna hit it home. Remember, I talked about the fact that my sister was diagnosed with lymphoma six years ago and she's healthy and she's in full remission and we thank God for that. But she has given me permission to share with each of you today just some segments of the diary that she wrote as she was going through this process. Now, I don't just want this to be an emotional moment, but I want us to hear in her words how close to this message that I've brought to you guys today is to the truth about what God has done in Jesus. On April 30th at about 3.45 in the afternoon, I sat at my desk at work. My cell phone rang, and I answered. It was Dr. Bard. Kelly, we have the results of your biopsy. It's lymphoma. What? It's a high-grade variety. Wait, 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 come again? We don't want you to think that this is the end. I never get sick. Are you all right? Am I going to die? Yes, 
yes, I'm all right, I'm fine. Well, you have an appointment with Dr. Rappaport at Danbury Hospital tomorrow morning. Okay, I'll be there. I headed downstairs to tell my boss. When I shut the door, I started to cry. And I eked out the words, it's lymphoma. Oh, Kelly, honey, you're going to beat this. Anything you need, we're here. She had survived breast cancer a few years ago and knew exactly what I was feeling. Do you need to leave for the day? Yes, yes, I think I do. I called my mom, my husband, and my dad on the way home, and I cried. And not really because of the diagnosis, surprisingly enough, but because of my family's emotion and support. We are more messed up than we know. But here are the words after she had come through this process and had given her life back over to God in this process. I'm st I still get scared sometimes at the idea that this does have the potential to kill me. I am trying to trust in the Lord for complete healing and just to rest in him. But sometimes it's hard to get my head to cooperate with my heart. I don't want to be afraid. And I was just listening to the Bible, Philippians 4. Guys, just listen. Just really dig in. The Lord is near. He's near. Close proximity in relationship. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious for anything. Present your requests to God. The God of peace the God of reconciliation, the God of atonement because of Jesus' sacrifice will be with you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am scared, but I am strong. I know that I will have to be brought down way low to be raised up again. I pray that God will give me the strength when I have none. And the verse I keep repeating in my head, trust in the Lord. Believe in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. It even makes me cry when I write it. When this is all over, I want to get involved. I need to help other people with this illness. A worthwhile purpose. Sin is out to destroy us. But God's relentless grace is available when we trust in Jesus Christ and we pass over, the Bible says, from death, the wages of sin, the outcome of sin, we pass over from death into life with God and we begin to reflect his goodness and his character as we were always meant to do. I'm gonna ask the band to come up as we close down here. And in light of all this, I have uh, two challenges for two different audiences this morning. Uh, the, the first audience is, for those of you in this room who um, are not Christ followers, you don't follow Jesus, you've never received Christ, you've never made this declaration of trusting in him, I just wanna speak for God for a second, what I believe God says in this book that this is not about an angry God that wants to send you to hell. 
That is the furthest thing from, on God's mind and the furthest thing that we see in the grace that's available to us in the sacrifice of Jesus. This is not about an angry God that wants to send you to hell. It's about a loving and gracious, merciful God who wants to give you life. He wants to give you life. And so I challenge you as the band plays, as we sing together, maybe pray while you're singing or just pray. Let everybody else sing for heaven's sake. But just pray and do some business with God and maybe, maybe for the first time you just say, Jesus, I do want to trust that you have the way to life and I want to rely on you to deal with my sin so that I can come into a relationship with God. And I encourage you, if you do that after the service, just check in with the Welcome Center. Let somebody know, myself or Clark or anybody else on this stage, just tell someone. Because the big deal is that we want to do everything that's within our power as a church, as this campus, to connect you with the next steps in living out that relationship with God and all that that life means. And for the second audience, it's for those of you who consider yourselves or claim to be Christ's followers. You have trusted and believed in Jesus for this eternal life that you receive when sin is dealt with at the cross. I want to encourage you to sing and to praise God as well and just reflect on the glorious goodness of a holy God who loves you and gave himself for you. Sing as loud as you can in thankfulness to this God who has demonstrated his love for you in Christ. And then I would also challenge you as you're singing, as you're praying. As my sister said, I want to get involved. I want my story to be for a worthwhile purpose. See, the reality is, is for the Christ follower, Jesus stood in your place and took the hit for sin. And in God's amazing mercy, as he's repairing the broken image in us in Christ, you now, as a Christ follower, stand in his place and you become his ambassador to those around you. You are the means by which God gets this amazing gospel message out to the people in this world, the people around you, the people in your natural path of life. So I challenge you to think about that, to think about a person that you can invest in this week, to just have a conversation with so that you can realize the outcome of this forgiveness of sins, which is being made like God and sharing his message of grace to other people. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we... Uh, we are so struck and taken aback by your tremendous mercy and grace. God, we thank you, Lord, that you're not okay with sin. You're not okay with the thing that's leading us down the road to death. God, thank you so much for just this vivid portrait of grace in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Lord, you drawing our sin into one spot, dealing with it in your justice, but sparing us in your mercy so that we could live with you and relate with you in a way that we never could on our own. God, we praise you and we thank you. There's just no other words to describe it. We just say thank you for this sacrifice. We thank you for how Leviticus and other books in the Bible all point toward this wonderful story of salvation. God, that we can be free from the clutches of sin and live with you forever.
Jesus, thank you, Lord, for, for doing what you did for us. And we want to trust and believe that you have the way of eternal life. So wherever we're at, God, we just hand our lives over to you. Whatever step on the journey of life that we're at, we just hand it over to you. And we say, we trust you, we believe you, and we know that we will experience life in your name because of who you are and what you've done. And God, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, the Bible says, as a seal, like the deal is done. We're going to make it when Christ returns. Thank you for your sending of your spirit that we might actually begin to work out this rescue that you've begun in us through the sacrifice of Christ. So Lord, we just pause for a second and we sing these songs together as a reflection of your goodness and your holiness. And it is in the name of Jesus in whom we find life that we pray.